0: Well, we return today into the book of Nehemiah. We're going to uh, continue to make our way verse by verse through the book. And today, we're at chapter 10. To remind you, you may recall that the people have returned to the land. They got busy right to work uh, pretty much right after getting there. They got to work. They rebuilt and restored a few things. The temple, certainly, so that they could worship the Lord. We saw that in the book of Ezra. Uh, Then they begin to work on the walls so that they'll have a safe and secure place. And then the houses that are scattered throughout the city. And so we've been making our way through the book of Nehemiah and we've considered these things. And now that each of those things are in place, the temple, the walls, the homes, and so on, the people can do that which God desired for His people to do all along, and that is to worship and serve the Lord there in the city, to live in a place that is safe and secure, and to live and walk in peace. And so those are the things that God wanted for His people, and they were in a sense doing them, over you know this hundred and some years between the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, they were sort of doing them, but not as God intended. Not fully as the Lord intended. And, and I made the point before, they were surviving, but they weren't thriving. And God really wanted them to really go deep with Him in these things, but they were unable to do that. And so a point that I would make for us is this, that God wants good things for His people. I'm sure you know that. You're probably aware of that. Maybe sometimes, though, you doubt that. But God wants good things for his people, and he wants to shower the blessing of his presence on each one of us. And he wants to, as the scripture says, show himself mighty on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him. He wants to do those things. And as we've entered now the last or the latter half of the book of Nehemiah, that started in chapter 8, as we've entered that, what we are watching with the children of Israel here in the book is that they are beginning to visibly enter into. That period of blessing, where they're walking in the ways that God has for them, and His blessing is being poured out on their lives, and so we've seen some things. We've seen how God drew His people uh, to Himself through His Word. We looked at that back in Ezra chapter, or excuse me, Nehemiah chapter two. We saw that they began to hunger His Word so much that they would go to Ezra the teacher and they would say, "Teach us the Word. We want to know more of what God wants from us." And as they began to read the Word and study the Word, that led to as we saw a place of repentance. And again, as we looked at it at that time, the people discovered just how good God really is and was in their lives over the, the millennia, if you will. And they also discovered just how far short their ancestors and they themselves have fallen from who God is and the standard of what God wants for their lives. And as we looked, the people began to confess their sin. But this, And again, this wasn't just a, yeah, alright, fine, I did it and it's wrong, and I shouldn't have done it. It wasn't one of those, but it was a brokenness and a mourning over their sin. And that, that's what God has to bring into our lives. We can't really create that. We can't stir that up in people. God just has to bring that into our hearts. And I would encourage you, pray that God breaks your heart over your sin. And as God breaks their hearts, they begin to mourn and they commit themselves that they're going to forsake their sin. Now, that's the last verse, if you will, of chapter 9. So take a glance there. Chapter 9 of Nehemiah, verse 38, it says, And because of all these things, remember that long prayer that was prayed there in chapter 9, because of all these things, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents of the names of those, uh, the priests, the Levites, uh, and the princes. Princes, it says there. And so, chapter 9 ended with this commitment, this covenant that they're taking to walk in the ways of the Lord. Chapter 10 is going to be the list of the people that signed that covenant. So if you didn't read it, I understand. It's a list of names there. You might think I'll skim through it or whatever. But notice uh, how... It, well, you're going to notice, I should say, that there's 84 names that are going to be listed on this covenant or this pledge. And these are individuals that are committing themselves and their leaders that are committing their leadership. In my ministry, we're going to do these things, is what they're saying and they're putting their names there. Now we're not going to read through each of these names. But I do want to point out a couple of things. As I said, there's 84 different people that are listed in the first uh, 27 verses. And they're divided up into four categories, which I want to draw your attention to. The first one is found in verse 1. It says, On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hacaliah." So f- the first group is a group of one. And that is the political leader here, the governor of the city. And so Nehemiah, he writes his name on this covenant. The second group also starts in verse 1 and it moves through verse 8. And so, as you can see there, it says uh, Zedekiah, Sarai, Azariah, a whole bunch of names. And then it ends in verse 8, and these are the priests. So you have the governor, one group. Then you have the priest, a second group. The third group are starting in verse 9, and it says, and the Levites. And so the third group is Joshua. And all of the others uh, that are listed there, the Levites, 17 of them are listed in that particular space there. And then finally, starting in verse 14, you have 44 more men that are listed running through verse 27. And they are, some versions say, the heads of the households, um, the ESV, which I'm reading from, says, and the chiefs of the people. And so 84 leaders sign their name to this document that we are going to forsake our sin And we're going to walk in the ways of the Lord. Now, it's not just limited, though, to the 84 leaders. If you look at verse 28, it says, Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, That was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, of the Lord our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. So you have 84 people signing it. You got a couple hundred or tens of thousands of people that are there. Obviously, they all can't put their name on this document. So you have sort of the 84 leaders that are putting their names, and the rest, you know, hey, I raise my right hand and I promise I'll keep it as well. And so this whole group of people here, the rest of the people as it says in verse 28. Now look down at verse 29. In that section I just read, it says, And we enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. Now when they say that, reference now is being made to the Old Testament law that was given to Moses, God's people given through Moses. And that Old Testament law is commonly referred to as the Mosaic Covenant. Now Moses received the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Covenant. He received it on Mount Sinai. So it's also sometimes called the Sinai Covenant. And the Mosaic law, the covenant, was given to Moses beginning in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 20 is where we have the Ten Commandments that you've probably heard of. But beginning in Exodus 19 and running through the rest of the book of Exodus, the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Mosaic law is given to us and it's sort of expanded, developed, Uh, and, and kind of played out there for us the Mosaic Covenant now the Mosaic Covenant we have a lot of covenants in the Bible the Abrahamic Covenant the Noahic Covenant the Davidic Covenant the New Covenant in Jeremiah and so on one of the things that's unique about the Mosaic Covenant is the Mosaic Covenant is a conditional covenant now there are some covenants in which God just simply says this is what I'm gonna do sit back and watch there are other covenants, though, that are based on a condition. And that is that the action of one party is dependent upon the action of the other party. And the Mosaic Covenant is one of those. And so the condition of this covenant, if you wanted to read, I'm going to put it up on the screen, it's given to us in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And Deuteronomy 28, it spells it out this way. It says, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all that you are commanded, all of His commandments that I give to you, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all of these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be. Obedience there, as you can see, would bring blessing. That's a conditional covenant. Now, Let me keep reading. Uh, Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28, it says, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do His commandments and all the statutes that I command you, then all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed you shall be. So, in the Mosaic covenant, obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings a curse. Now let me throw this in here. Many of us, we live our Christian lives Based on this idea. Our thinking is that if I do what God tells me I'm going to do, then God will be nice to me and He'll get, bring good things into my life. And if I'm bad, then I better look out. The problem is that's not New Testament thinking. The New Covenant is not based on conditions. It's not based on what you do and that God will bless you. It's based on what He did. That He went to a cross so that you could be forgiven of your sins and that you could be washed and you can be cleansed. Many of us, even in our Christianity, we think, if I'm going to get to heaven, I better live a pretty good life. But the New Testament is very clear. That's not the way to get to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody can come to the Father unless He goes through Me. So it's a different mode of thinking altogether between the Old Testament Mosaic Covenant and the New Testament New Covenant idea. But here we are, and I'm going to go back to this in a second a little more. I'll explain a little further. But here we are in Nehemiah, and the priests, the Levites, and the leaders of the people, they pledge themselves that they're going to walk in the ways of the Lord, and if they don't, that they will experience the consequences of their actions. I think it's important to note that these guys are not giving God permission to curse them, but rather what they're doing is they're acknowledging that God will curse them if they fail to walk in His ways. And so the principle is this do these things and I will bless you God said to his people and do these things and you will experience the curse now as I said the Mosaic Covenant is different from the New Covenant however this idea of walking in God's ways and experience blessing and being outside of his ways and experiencing the consequences of that that idea does carry over to the New Testament it doesn't carry over to our salvation but it carries over to our daily living And so the Apostle Paul, he wrote this in the book of Galatians. He said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will you also reap. I don't know how many farmers we have here. But the idea of sowing is planting into the ground. The idea of reaping is harvesting that which you have planted. And so Paul says, you sow and you reap. Now he goes on to say in verse 8, he says, because the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life and again that's not so much a threat as it is just a promise that god has given it because it's a principle it's the way things work it's the same idea of the law of gravity that what what goes up must come down so to the flesh reap corruption so to the spirit reap the things of eternal life And so here are these folks that are acknowledging, even as they take this pledge, they're acknowledging if we forsake this pledge, we will experience the consequences of our action. God, You want to bless us, and You've given us a way to walk therein, and now it's our responsibility to walk in that particular way. Otherwise, we'll experience the consequences of our action. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder with God, and, and sometimes I wonder things like, God, why won't you just let me do whatever I want to do? Why don't you leave me alone and let me go and do the things that I want to do? Why does there have to be a curse that comes if I am disobedient? And sometimes we think maybe that God is angry or mad. He gets mad if I disobey. And you know what? He he tried to be patient, tried to be kind, but he can't take it anymore. And I, I quote Popeye a lot that's all I can stand and I can't stand no more you know that that's God's attitude and he's just going to get us because we're not listening to him but that's not God's purpose that's not his objective when he allows us to experience the consequences of our action allowing people to experience the consequences of their sin is not God's way of getting even with us Allowing people to experience the consequences of our sin is not God's way of letting off a little bit of steam because He's frustrated with us. And, and some of us that are parents, we know. It happens. We get frustrated and we just want to let our kids have it or whatever. And then everyone's like, hey, don't go in there. Mom's mad or whatever. Or in my case, Dad's mad or whatever it may be. That, that's not what God is doing. And as we said before, God allows us to experience the consequences of our sin so that we might turn from our sin. That the difficulty and the unpleasantness and even the pain that we are now experiencing from the fruit of our actions that all of those are designed by god to bring correction into our lives and that that correction is designed to bring us to a place of future obedience because when we walk in obedience what does god do he pours out his blessing and that's god's desire that's what god wants for us and so he allows us to experience the consequences of our action So these guys here back in the book of Nehemiah, they're praying, God curse us if we disobey you. I don't pray prayers like that. I don't know about you. That's not the kinds of prayers that I pray. But I do pray prayers that are similar to that. I certainly don't use words like God curse me. But I use words like this. You know what, Lord? Whatever it takes, I want to follow you. And you know, if that means that I have to stumble a little bit and i got to feel a little bit of pain, And that in that pain, I cry out to You and I wonder, Lord, what's going on? And it's through that that I follow You more closely? Well then, Lord, whatever it takes. If it takes letting go of some things in my life that are hindering me from running hard after You, well then, take them away, Lord. Whatever it takes. There's a story in the New Testament. It's in the Gospels. We actually see it in in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So in three of the four Gospels. And it's the story of a rich young man that came to Jesus to inquire of Jesus. And in the story we learn that not only is the fellow young and rich, but he's also a ruler of the people. So here's a guy that pretty much has everything going for him here on the earth, and yet we learn something about the guy based on the way that he comes to Jesus. And what we learn about this particular fellow is that in this guy's heart, despite the fact that he has everything else on the outside, that in this guy's heart that there was a sense that something was missing and they didn't know exactly what that something was but that he sensed that god wanted something more for his life and so he approaches jesus and in approaching jesus in matthew 19 he says teacher what good deed must i do to inherit to inherit eternal life so here's a guy that wants to go deeper with the lord here's a guy that wants all the blessing that god wants to bestow on his life Not just temporal blessings, like being rich and and a ruler of the people and all these things, but also eternal blessings. And it's revealed in his question, this is a man that wants to inherit eternal life. And so he comes to Jesus and he said, what do I need to do? Now you can go and you can read the passage. As I said, it's in Matthew chapter 19. And in reading the question, or in the passage I mean, what you'll discover is Jesus doesn't immediately answer his question. And rather, what Jesus does, Jesus begins to rattle off a number of things that this guy could do. Go ahead and do this. Go do this. Go do this. I suspect these are the things the guy said, you know what, if I do this, I'll get eternal life. So he did it, and yet there was still something more missing. And then he went on to the next thing, and he said, I'll try this. And still, there was that same hole in his heart. And he said, that's not it either. And he kept trying all these things. And so in the passage, Jesus says, well, you know, don't murder Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. He says, don't bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus just starts throwing all these things out there that the guy has probably tried to do before or has done before. And the man replies, he said, I've done all of those things. Now, some people think that the man has an attitude. I've done that too. I've done that or whatever i'm pretty good right i'm righteous just give me your blessing that i know i'll get into heaven and that everybody else will know i'll get into heaven but i don't think that's the attitude of this guy's heart see and maybe i'm wrong but i think this guy is coming to the lord because in his heart he knows there is more and he's falling short of that and he's wondering why i've tried everything and still there's something more he said i've done all of those things and still nothing jesus i've tried it all and yet something is still hindering show me lord what it is and then jesus says this to him this is from the book of luke he says there's one thing that you still lack he says sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and then you will have treasure in heaven and then you can come follow me there's one thing that you still lack i don't know why but that hits me and the reason why that hits me hit me first service as well the reason why It hits me as this, because I think in our lives that there is a desire, probably in everyone in this room's heart, for more. We sense, you know, there's more, God. I I know I'm in relationship with you. I know you promised me through your word I'll go to heaven. But I feel like there's more. I feel like there's a greater intimacy that I'm not enjoying. I feel like you're running ahead of me and have to keep stop every now and again and look back for me. And I want to be running right with you. Lord, show me what is hindering me. And so as we see, the Lord says to him, you need to sell all you have and distribute to the poor. In the case of this man, Jesus doesn't tell everybody else to do that, but in the case of this man, his wealth, his possessions, his prestige, all of those things were keeping him from all that God wanted for him. And so Jesus is saying to this guy, if he is ever going to experience the peace with God that he knows is out there to possess, then he needs to put aside these things. If he's ever going to obtain the more that his heart was longing for, if he was ever going to have all that God God desired for him to have, that he was going to have to take the next step in his walk with him. And he was going to have to get rid of the obstacle that was hindering him. And again, in his life, it was his wealth in those things. In your life, it's going to be something different likely. And the Lord is gracious and merciful. That when we come to him and say, Lord, I know, I sense there's something more. What is it? He'll put his finger on an area. Something that is hindering us. You see, God wanted good for this rich young ruler. God desired good for the people in Nehemiah's day. And God desires you and I. He desires to bless us with his presence and to remake us into his image. And God is continually calling us deeper as his followers. Now, sin would hinder the people of Israel from enjoying all that God intended to them to enjoy. enjoy. And sin will hinder you and I as well. I I think that's a given. We all kind of know that. But notice, though, in the life of this rich man here, the wealth wasn't sin. There's nothing sinful about uh, the wealth here. So not only does sin hinder us, but earthly pleasures can hinder us as well from all that God wants for us in our lives. And they may not be sin but they can be hindrances. And as I said, it wasn't a sin that this man possessed, the wealth that he possessed, but the wealth was hindering him nonetheless. And so Jesus tells him to forsake it. You know, in your life, I don't don't know what it is in your life. I have a pretty good idea of my life as the Lord is searching me out and searches me out. But in your life, it might be some activity. Nothing wrong with the activity at all. But there might be some activity that you are involved in And your time and your energy and your effort is spent on that activity. And it's likely hindering your continued spiritual growth. And so in that case, if that is the case, Jesus may be calling you to forsake that activity. So let me ask you a question. Do you want more in your relationship with Jesus? Is there sort of this sense that you can go deeper and experience more of him in every area of your life? And I think the answer for almost all of us here is, you know, I do. I'm not sure I'm ready to go down that path, though, because I'm not sure what he's going to ask me to forsake. But inside of us, there is a desire for it. And the reason why there is that desire for us, those of us that follow him, because the Holy Spirit is drawing us. And he's a little bit up the road, so to speak. And he says, I want you to come up here with me. And so he's asking us to come with him. The answer, if you do want more and so on and so forth, the answer is, You need to invite Him into your life in a further way. You need to say, "All right, Lord, whatever it takes. Reveal those things that are hindering me. Now that's not an easy prayer to pray, especially if you're going to pray that prayer with sincerity. But it's even more difficult to do when the Lord says, you want to go deeper? Here's the area. It's more difficult when He puts His finger on a particular area. And believe me, the Lord's not going to put His finger on an area like Brussels sprouts. And he said, look, I want you to come deeper with me, but you have to forsake Brussels sprouts. The Lord's going to put His hand on that which is, if you will, most precious to us. You see, the Lord knows how to find what is most precious to us, most dear to us in our hearts and say, that's the thing that's keeping you. That's what you need to leave behind if you want to go any further with me. Now, we remind ourselves that anything we forsake for the purpose of running hard after the Lord will never be done in vain. But even in reminding ourselves, that doesn't make it any easier, does it? Because our hearts still love what our hearts love. And so the Lord then essentially says to us, but do you love me more? And we're faced with sort of the decision that is in front of us. Lord, this isn't sin. It's not bad. No, it's not. But it's hindering you. And I want you to go further. The question is, do we love Him more? Now back in our story of the rich young ruler, one of the things that we discover is that after Jesus said to him, sell all that you have and give to the poor, it says that the man went away very sad. Matthew says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, we read that, we hear that, and some of us we might think, what a loser this guy is. He would come to Jesus. Jesus he would say, what do I need to do? Jesus would tell him, and the man says, well, I don't want to do that. I don't like that, you know, or so, And we look at him and we say, this guy's such a loser. But I would suggest, and maybe I'm wrong, but I would suggest that his going away sad there is the exact response that the Lord would want for him to have. Now, he could have jumped up, he could have run forward and said, No problem, I'll do whatever needs to be done. You know, run up forward for the altar call or something like that, saying, first thing in the morning, I'll sell everything I have and I'll come follow you, it'll be awesome. And that would be kind of fun to see. It would be neat there and it would give us evidence for why we should make people come forward and run forward and decide right now or whatever. But many times those kinds of reactions are knee-jerk reactions. You know, you bop the knee, the, the, the foot kicks out, and then it goes right back to where it was the day before. Those sort of knee-jerk reactions. And so the fact that this guy is going away sad is not necessarily a bad thing or a negative thing at all. In another place, Jesus would tell his disciples that they needed to count the cost for what it meant to follow him. And so he gives an extreme example. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He, it goes on, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now we read that and we, we think, why would Jesus ever tell us to hate our moms and dads and brothers and sisters? That doesn't sound like Jesus. Doesn't he tell us to love people and so on? The whole point of that particular passage there is you need to love the Lord. I need to love the Lord to such an extent that my relationship with other people comes so far down the list that it appears as if I hate those others. But that I am so in love with him and I'm willing to go wherever he would have me to go. He also says you need to hate your own life. And he says whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's not a cross around the neck as an adornment. This is a cross that you put on your back and you drag to a hill that you're going to climb up on to kill yourself or to be killed on. And so Jesus is saying, anyone that wants to come after me has to be willing to give their life to do so. Jesus is saying, you want to come after me? You want to follow me? Well, that's great. I kind of have like a tone. I don't know if Jesus had a tone, all right? But he says, that's great. In a sense, he says, the more the merrier. But you need to know this. To follow me is going to cost you your life. So before you make any decisions, take some time and think about it. And I'll be over here whenever you're ready. It's as if he's saying to him, look, we'd be happy to have you, but you need to understand this, that to follow me is to do so on my terms, not on your own terms. You're more than welcome to do so, but just make sure you take that into account before you sign up to join the club. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. And you know, I I have to tell you, I respect this guy for going away sorrowful because it demonstrates that he's doing exactly what Jesus told all of us to do, and that is count the cost for what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, the Scripture doesn't tell us one way or the other whether this man returned or didn't return. I like to think and I, I like to hope that he came back and he said, you know what, I gave it a lot of thought. A week later, three days later, I came back he comes back and says i'm in and maybe he did return and maybe he came back as one that was more committed than ever to run hard after the lord and follow the lord wherever he would go but that's what the lord requires of each of us and again i'm sorry if when you came to faith nobody like spelled that out to you because a lot of christianity these days is essentially you want to be happy you want to have a nice home you want to be glad you want your best buddy God in the sky to be alongside you every step of the way, then become a Christian. Well, who wouldn't want that? We all want that. But when I go through the difficulties and the struggles and the challenges, and I wonder, God, where are you? He says, I'm still here. You still want to come? You see, we've got to count the cost. And so I ask you the same question I ask myself. Am I counting the cost of what it takes to go deeper with Christ? Have you come to the Lord and said, you know what, Lord, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes so that you can take me deeper. I want you to do that in my life. Show me what is hindering me. You see, you pray a prayer like that, the Lord delights to hear a sincere prayer like that. And what we also know about the Lord is He's very faithful to put His finger on an area. I've shared with you in my life, God has graciously, pretty much year by year, period by period, Put his hand on an area. I'm glad he didn't say, "Oh my gosh, there's 5,000 areas you got to get cleaned up, buddy." But just very graciously, he said, "Here's the area that we're going to work on." When I first came to know the Lord, I had a foul mouth, and the Lord said, "Yeah, we're going to work on that." And so He put His area, His finger on that area, and I, and then I, if you know, the curse words would come out because you know they're they're sort of ingrained, they're they're habitual or whatever. They would come out, and you would have thought I killed somebody in my heart. Because I had known, I knew how far that was from the Lord, and that it was hindering my presence with him. And so he put his finger on it very heavily, he put his hand very heavily on that particular area there, and God began to do a delivering work. And I began to desire more to be in right relationship with him than to be able to say whatever I wanted to say whenever I wanted to say it. And when we got victory in that particular area, I got victory in that area, the Lord said, That's awesome. Tomorrow morning we start in area two. And then we began to work on that. And I've been walking with him now. What year are we in? What year is this? 2015? You know, so 20, a bunch of years or so. I don't have my calculator. And he continues, he's still doing it. Even to this day, he's still doing it. And he's putting his finger on areas of our lives. And you know, that's challenging. I read something on Facebook this morning from a guy. And it said something like this. He said, nobody ever told me that the Christian walk would be a 70-year grind. I don't know if that's encouraging words for you, but it's reality. You see, it's day in and day out, seeking the Lord and responding as He leads until we enter into the kingdom of God. And that's okay. That's the growth process that God wants to do in our lives. And so God's growing me. And I'm sure He's growing you as well. It's challenging, but that's the path to blessing as our sermon is entitled today. And so as we continue in our passage, look at verse 30. The passage continues. It says, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take theirs for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, beginning in verse 30, what they're going to do is they're going to pledge to four specific areas of the Mosaic Covenant. So remember, they agreed that they were going to obey the Mosaic Covenant. Now there's hundreds of areas in the Mosaic Covenant. I think it's 606. But there's hundreds of different things here. They're putting down four in particular. Now this isn't that they're saying, we'll follow these four and not the rest. They're going to follow all of them, or at least try to follow all of them. But it seems that these are four areas where they perennially stumbled in and fell in. And so now they're coming publicly, the thousands of them that are gathered, and publicly are saying, we as a people are going to obey the commands of God and do these things. The first one is it's a pledge not to intermarry with the foreign nations. And as we've said before, that again and again in the history of the Jewish people, they had this tendency to intermarry with the the foreign women and and vice versa um, that are in the nations that are surrounding them. And as we pointed out before, the Bible's not so much against two people of different nations or tribes or races that are marrying one another. What it's against is two people of two different religions doing so. Because you're going in different directions. And so here in these foreign nations, they're worshiping and serving all of these foreign gods. And now the nice little Jewish boy joins the family. And before you know it, he's worshiping and serving all of these foreign gods. So the Lord had said years ago, thousands of years earlier, don't do it. And initially they said, we won't. And then they do. And they experience the consequences. And they say, we'll never do that again. And then they do. And so on and so forth. And so now these people are saying, they're pledging, we're not going to do that. We pledge as parents, back in the day, in this day, where the parents pretty much arranged the marriages, that we will not give our sons and our daughters to foreign women. Today a similar pledge would be the man or the woman that is preparing to marry, saying, you know what? I'm going to honor the Lord in this. And I'm going to seek a person, not just a guy that has a card. Yes, I'm a Christian. When I was 11, we did this thing, but I don't think about God at all anymore or whatever. But I'm in. I have insurance. I'm getting into heaven. But a guy that is running after Jesus in the same way that you're running after the Lord. And so the pledge, the first one there. Now secondly and thirdly, in verse 31 you'll notice, it says that they will keep the Sabbath day and they will also keep The seventh year, specifically, if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not participate, it says. And it goes on, and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of of every debt. Now, the law of the Sabbath day commanded that no work be done on the seventh day of the week. We see it in Exodus 20, we see it in Deuteronomy 5, and as you can see on the screen, we also see it in the book of Leviticus. And there in Leviticus it says, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. And you shall do no work. It's a Sabbath to the Lord in all of your dwelling places. And so they pledge, number two here, is they pledge to keep the Sabbath day. They also pledge to keep the Sabbath year. Now the Sabbath year is written about in Leviticus chapter 25, And also in Exodus chapter 23, which we have on the screen, it says, For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. And so on the seventh year, no planting out in the fields. Well, what are we going to eat? Where are we going to get food? Well, the Lord's going to provide. Surely the fields, they'll grow some things from the the previous year's planting. The seeds that kind of didn't make it then, but they make it now. But the Lord says, I won't leave the ground completely fallow. Imagine if you went into your boss after six years of working for him and said something to the effect of, Hey, just want to remind you, I'm not going to be here next year because I'm taking a year off, you know, or whatever, to seek the Lord. He would think you're crazy here. But this is what the Lord instructed them, and the people thought God was crazy. And so they kept it sometimes, but then they're like, This is nuts. We're not keeping this anymore. This is nuts. And so they stopped and they violated it. But now they're committing to do it. Now the fourth commitment is this. It's found, it starts in verse 32. And it says this, We also take on ourselves an obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of God. It continues in Verse 34. It says, We the priests, the Levites, the people, we have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of every ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of the Lord our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. So the fourth one, it's a little bit longer, but the fourth pledge is the people commit to paying the tithe or to make the necessary offerings to support the work of the Lord. Now if you go back and you look at the second, third, and fourth pledge, each one of those pledges of this covenant requires that these people live a life of faith. Because it takes faith to give God the first fruits. Because how do you know if there's a second fruit or a third fruit? You don't. You give Him the first one, and you do so in faith. You give the Lord His portion, trusting He'll keep His word to provide for you your next portion. It takes faith to let the land lie fallow every seventh year. It takes faith to give up the opportunity to make even greater profit by working seven days instead of just working six. You see, all of these things that they're listing here before us, these things take faith. It takes faith to walk in obedience to the commands of God. And it takes faith that is daily. It means essentially saying this, it says, all right, Lord, I'm going to trust you in this. But sadly, too often, and the reason why I know what we say is because it's what I say in my own heart. Sadly, too often, we say something to the effect of, but God, that doesn't make sense. And because I don't understand it, I'm not going to do it until it does make sense. So Lord, the ball's in your court. You've got to explain it to me. Or sometimes we even say something like this, you know what God, it's not that I don't understand, you don't understand. You don't understand that things don't work this way anymore. Things are different now. And we sort of begin to instruct the Lord. You know, I'm reminded in this of the book of Malachi. And Malachi, the prophet speaking, he says this, the Lord speaking through him, the Lord says, "'Bring the full tithes into the storehouse,' a tithe is like an offering, "'that there may be food in my house. And thereby,' he says, "'put me to the test,' says the Lord of hosts, If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Now human wisdom says to do that is foolish. Because you have wants, you have debts, you have bills to pay, you can't afford to tithe. But God's Word in that passage there seems to say instead, you can't afford not to tithe, is what it seems to say. And as I look at the children of Israel, and and this isn't a message, I'm, I'm not sharing a message about tithing or giving offerings. We've talked about that in the past here. What I'm talking about is living a life of faith. And so we can't afford, if you want to walk with the Lord and go where the Lord wants you to go, we can't afford not to live lives of faith. But I suspect the people of Israel... That they didn't set out to willfully disobey the commands of the Lord, but rather instead what happened to them is what so often happens to you and I is that very slowly they began to slip into the place of disobedience. And so they stopped paying the tithe or they began to violate the Sabbath just this one time. Just this one time I'm going to do so. But before you know it, just this one time it becomes a lifestyle of disobedience. And before you know it, rather than being a person that walks by faith, we become people that are walking in disobedience. And so they pledge themselves. We commit ourselves. We're going to do the things that God has told us to do. Now you look at verse 38. These are the closing verses. It says, Now the priest, the son of Aaron, shall shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of the grain, the wine, uh, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as, as, well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers, and we will not neglect the house of our God. And so they wrap up their covenant, look at verse 39 with that, that statement, we will not neglect the house of our God. And the point that I would make from that is this, commitments to the Lord are great. So whether you call it a covenant or an oath or a pledge or, or a vow of some sorts, there's value in there. And, and they can be turning points in your life of a new work that God has done in your life. But, but the reality about any commitment, any vow, is this. That even oaths that are made with the very best of intentions and the utmost sincerity, that before long they will fade away if we are not engaging in daily in the worship and service of the Lord. And so this idea of the worship and service of the Lord, that's the idea we will not neglect the house of our God. That's where the worship and service took place. So to, to give you an example from my life, I'm not faithful to my wife because I made a commitment to her 25 years ago. I'm faithful to my wife because I made a commitment to her this morning and this day, and I'll do it again tomorrow, the next day. And we have to continually come back to that place of commitment. And so you want to be faithful to your commitment to the Lord, then you must return to the Lord each day to make that commitment. And to do that requires that each day you sit with Him anew. And that you partake of Him. And that He fills you with His Holy Spirit as He guides and directs you. I don't know if you've noticed over the last few years as I've been sharing with you, if not every message, consistently I'll make reference to the time that you need to take to sit with the Lord, to meet with Him, and to hear from Him. To have your daily quiet time. And some of you are thinking, you know, I do that. And thank God I do. Because that's, my, that's what sustains me to walk with Him. Some of us are thinking, you know, I keep saying it, but I really should do that. And some of us are thinking, I ain't doing that. Time for that. I'll just wait for Sunday. I'm not just making things up here, friends. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus talks about you want to be a branch that bears fruit, but well, then you need to abide in the vine. You can't just be some branch that's lying there near the tree. You've got to abide in the vine. You've got to be tapped into the source of life. Jesus is that source of life. And if you're meeting with Jesus one day a week on a Sunday morning, or you go to a, a small group during the week, and then you also check in here on a Sunday, I'll tell you right now, that's not going to be enough to have a relationship with Him that is thriving. The intimacy that your heart is crying out for, that you want more, you want to go deeper, all those things that we talked about earlier, it's going to require that you stop everything for a period of time every day and you practice the presence of Christ. You get into His presence, you meet with Him, you talk with Him, you let Him speak to you as well. You go to that place of personal worship Having had your heart swell and you leave there saying, you know what, Lord, I love you so much. And I just want to walk in your ways today. That's not that hard of a vow, is it? After your heart has been in that place? That's just the natural outcry of your heart. Is to run with the Lord and be with the Lord and love the Lord and do the things of the Lord. You're not relying on a commitment you made last Sunday or 20 years ago when you came to the Lord. You're relying on a commitment that you made 10 minutes ago. You're walking in His ways because you love Him. And that's how any of us will be able to keep our commitments to follow the Lord and to walk in His ways. And that's what the Lord desires for us. So as we look at this chapter in Nehemiah chapter 10, here are our people that are committing themselves to the Lord. That's what we need to be doing on a daily basis. Would you agree with that? Alright, so let's pray together. Now as we pray, and before I pray, what I want to do is I just want to take a moment of silence here for us. So that each of us can just take a moment to let the Lord speak to our hearts. And, and you know what? Maybe the Lord already has been. He probably has. By His Spirit, He's kind of been addressing an area of sin in your life or an area of hindrance in your life. And, and He's been telling you, you know, that's the area that's keeping you from running with me. So let's just take a moment. Let's go before the Lord. Let Him speak to us. You speak to Him quietly. You know, it's of the Lord's mercies that He does what He's doing today. It's of His mercies that He doesn't leave us alone to kind of go in our own directions and do our own things, but that He keeps putting His hand on an area of our hearts. And this morning, what I would like to do is, similar to these guys here that are taking their pledge, I'd like to give any of us an opportunity this morning. If the Lord's been speaking to your heart And you sort of want to pledge yourself to obey His voice. And this morning what I'm going to ask you to do is just at your seat is to sort of stand. That that will sort of be you signing that covenant, taking that pledge. That you'll just sort of stand before the Lord and say, Lord, this is the area that's been keeping me from running with you. I give it to you now. So if that describes you, then go ahead and stand in your place there. The Lord sees. And be encouraged that He sees your heart and the attitude of your heart. Now, some of you say, you know what? I don't know about a commitment, but I want to begin a relationship with Him. I don't have a relationship with Him. Well, you can do that as well. So if you would like to stand now to begin a relationship with Christ, to recognize that He paid the price for your sin, and because of that, you're forgiven. And you can walk with Him wherever He will lead. You can start a relationship with Him. Then before we move on quickly, you stand as well. Now, to each of us that are standing, I see you, obviously, and I thank you for your courage, but the, more importantly, the Lord sees, and he sees the commitment that you're making today to him, and I want to pray for you. Father, I pray for these folks that are standing. I pray for those that aren't and yet are thinking about some things, Lord, wrestling with some things, wondering, Lord, I pray for each of these guys that are up now that you would bless them abundantly. Father, that as they commit themselves in a fresh way this morning, and they commit that particular area, Lord, that they know now You've been showing them, maybe You have been even before today, You've been showing them has been hindering them. But I pray that You would continue to give them the courage to walk in Your ways, to forsake either that sin or that hindrance, that they might be freed up to run hard after You. Father, I pray especially for your rich blessing. Lord, that in these coming days, in this next week and beyond, that they'll experience you in a fresh way and maybe in a new way, Lord, that they will be going deeper with you than they've ever gone in their walk with you. That you would be more real and more alive to them. That they would be in a sweeter fellowship and a sweeter communion with you than they've ever enjoyed before. Lord, that you would flood their heart with your presence. And Lord, that you would overflow their hearts with that rich, abundant life that you promise us in your word. Father, I pray that there will be those that are around them, people they work with, family members, that will see the work that you're doing, that will look at them and say, what happened? Something's different about you. I can see it in your face. And Lord, that that would give them the opportunity to point people to their good, loving Savior. Lord, You desire good things for Your people and we rejoice in that fact. And so Father, continue to flood our hearts with Your presence as we close out our service and as we go from this place, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen.